Hi, welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast. My name is Sam Cowan, and I'm your host. Thanks for finding us. If you've not already done so, I'd appreciate you subscribing at iTunes or at Stitcher for the Smarter Coaching Podcast. And please leave a review and a rating. That really helped me out. You can also download the podcast and read show notes at my website, smartercoachingllc.com. And from there, you can also email me. The email address is smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter for announcements about upcoming podcasts. My Twitter handle is smartercoaching. Please leave any tips, suggestions that you might have for me. I really greatly appreciate it. So with that said, let me turn you over to today's episode. Hey, welcome to the podcast today. And the podcast takes a little bit of a different twist this time. Most of the podcasts up to this point have really been about uh, youth sport, youth uh, coaching youth, developing youth, and trying to change how we approach youth sports. So today I delve into one of my other passions, which is endurance training, particularly distance runners. And so uh, I can't think of a better person to lead this off than Tom Schwartz. Uh, Tom is also known as Tin Man if you're a Let's Run message board reader and he has posted a lot on there and he has his own website as well runningprs.com and Tom um, really has jumped to the forefront lately with his coaching of Drew Hunter who is now the American record holder for uh, the high school mile having broken Alan Webb's record that uh, Drew set that in 2016. And uh, Drew also is going to uh, kind of get into a trend that others have done where he's going to skip college and go um, right into professional running. And we don't get into too much of talking about um, Drew's training specifically or that choice that Drew made. I really wanted to focus more generally on training as well. And uh, Tom has some interesting ideas. He has a good solid physiology background as well as practical and applied and years of coaching experience. And I think uh, Tom's willing to share his ideas. He speaks regularly uh, around the country and is uh, going into, uh, it sounds like a partnership with the Final Surge to offer some uh, information through their website and also some training tools that you can use for there. He's going to uh, start, sounds like, marketing those so that uh, others can use his training philosophy. Um, On this like I said, this is very different than the previous podcast, and so I hope that an audience finds this, and um, perhaps the folks who are more in the coach development may find this less interesting. I will say that Tom and I do talk a little bit about uh, multi-sport to multi-dimensional, multilateral development, um, whereas Tom takes a little bit more of an approach of, you know, year-round running is fine, and that uh, you can incorporate some of those activities that uh, – kids might get playing another sport those lateral movements frontal plane movement transverse plane movements um, into drills and conditionings that you can do and that he is a big proponent of that so i don't think he's uh, too far from the mark from where a lot of us stand as far as that idea goes so uh here's my interview with uh tom schwartz aka tin man hey i am here today with tom schwartz uh, better known as Tin Man for those of you who are on the Let's Run message board. And uh, Tom, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So um, I came across Tom. I don't know. We crossed paths on the Let's Run message board. God, probably a decade or so ago and, and had some offline communication there. And then um, and your name pops up regularly on there and as, as a coach. How about telling folks a little bit about your background, um, kind of your athletic background as well as what you've been doing coaching-wise? Um, just tell folks a little bit about your background as a coach, and, um, and, and we'll start with that. Oh, okay. Well, I, uh, I started indirectly coaching already in high school in the uh, in the early 80s I was on the uh, cross-country and track teams and very interested in the why behind training why do we do this and why did we do that do we do it because of tradition or is there a uh, real reason we're doing it physiologically I was into physiology already starting in uh, middle school because I had a very good science treat, uh, teacher who inspired me to uh, you know, to ask a lot of questions. He said, you know, the, the big thing is to figure out the reason behind and decide based on the evidence whether you should move forward with it or get rid of it and find a better replacement. Um, so I started helping in high school with writing workouts uh, with our head coach and uh, also that carried forward when I got to the collegiate level uh, but particularly when I transferred to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, Dr. Phil Lesson, who was our coach, who had his PhD in physiology exercise, was open to new ideas, was always trying to, uh, you know, tinker with his own training uh, methods and uh, include me in the conversation about how to use modern physiology research to set up training. Um, so I was already writing workouts by the time I was a sophomore, particularly as a junior, and he was implementing those workouts with the team more and more so, which of course gave me great confidence and inspired me to become a coach. Um, my own running was pretty modest because I'd had compartment syndrome in my calves already as a 19-year-old, and they didn't, the uh, medical doctors didn't really figure out what was going wrong with me until I had pretty bad nerve damage. So my training was limited and I couldn't run above 30 to 35 miles a week, which, which for a guy like me was about half of what I needed. So mm -hmm. realizing I couldn't become a, a great runner due to this limitation, I put my heart and soul into learning more about coaching. I coached at the um, collegiate level, starting already in graduate school. And uh, and then continued it for a couple of years thereafter, and then uh, became a, a private coach thereafter when I went to the Air Force, and then got out and um, became a teacher. Very good. When you were at uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse, was Carl Foster there then? He was not. He was not. He came after okay. I left. Doctor John Bakari was. I was. Uh, he had just graduated with his doctorate. I was his graduate assistant, so I taught his uh, labs and set up all the human performance assessments, including things like VO2 max and lactate threshold, um, respiratory capacity, blood cholesterol, you name it. And okay. um, Dr. William Floyd was really the guy who was the major influence in my um, uh, advancement of knowledge. 
He was, in fact, uh, two years older than Dr. David L. Castle. He graduated from The Ohio State University, and uh, he was actually quite brilliant. And uh, he was the one encouraging me to uh, pursue a doctorate, although I wish I would have done it back then. I'm doing it now. <laughs> oh, really? You are? That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit envious of you for that, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my background, I have a master's in exercise physiology as well, and uh, and one of my, my major professor was also an Ohio State alum, so um, I refuse to put the the in front of it just to nag him with anything else. Uh, with well, that, Dr. Floyd, uh, Dr. Floyd told me you repeatedly got to put the in front of it, or I'm incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Dr. Doyle told me the would tell me the same thing. So, uh, but uh, you know, uh, so it's been a good joke for a, a long time about the Ohio State University. So that's good. Um, so, how about talking a little bit about what your what your training philosophy is? And and we should probably point out this is a good time for those who don't know. Um, I mean, recently you have been coaching Drew Hunter, who uh, just this past year uh, be, uh, set the American high school record for the mile. And, um, and so talk about a little bit about your training philosophy and especially as it relates to young athletes. Well, my training philosophy evolved over time, but very early on already in the late seventies, uh, when I became a runner, I adopted the general principles of my first coach who was also a runner and quite good in the early sixties. And early on, I asked him questions and he said, well, you know, in my view, all, all training is good and you just have to figure out how to use the correct amounts at the correct, at the time, at the time when it's needed most. And he believed that, uh, the exclusion of one type of training over another had drawbacks because he had noticed that over the years as a coach, a lot of people became injured. Um, so that was my first exposure to a more eclectic, integrated approach. Um, then I went in on to high school, and of course, we did use that early on. It was always phasic. That is, you trained with distance first, and then you did some introductory, uh, either hill training or interval training, and then to more intense training, and then you tapered and peaked supposedly, although that rarely happened using that approach. And that's why I became super frustrated with that whole approach. Um, and that approach, of course, was Lydiard based although I uh, believe a lot of Lydiard's principles and concepts were valid, I didn't like the phasic approach one bit. I was exposed to the uh, complex approach via a Runner's World article in approximately 1983. No, it might have been a different magazine. There was one that was very popular back then that had all the races in, the road races in. But anyway. Well, running Times was another one that was really popular. Um, yeah, it's before Running Times, okay. actually. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, I can't think of it. at the, I, the Runner. I think it was The Runner. Anyway, I was in, uh, exposed to the complex approach of Pat Cloacy, who was the coach of Robert oh, D. Yeah. Costello of Australia, the famous marathoner, in which he integrated uh, all types of relevant linear-type training into a single week. 
you had a long run, you had a medium long run, you had hill repeats, you had uh, some short intervals, and you had basically a hard tempo run or a 10-mile tempo run. That's essentially what De Costello did week after week after week. But that had some drawbacks in my mind is you're trying to cram too many types of training into one week. And uh, also I had some drawbacks if you were racing regularly. If you were infrequently racing, such as De Costello, I can see uh, or I could see how the repetition of the cycle would have some value in that you could adjust just how hard you train and you become extremely familiar with the uh, cyclical process and you can say, okay, well, I need to run my 10 miler hard at this pace instead of this pace because this pace will allow me to recover and come back and do my next week of training exactly the same as before without a decrement, you know, a decrease in my performance. But I didn't think that was very practical at all because the vast majority of Americans in particular race frequently and they have an irregular racing schedule. Uh, at least we did back then. We might have a Tuesday, Friday race or a Wednesday, Friday or a Monday, Thursday or something to that effect. Or during track when we had three races, three track meets per week, which was just awful for developing runners back then. The people nowadays that gripe that they only have one track meet, I think are, are uh, you know, missing, missing the major point is that they have an advantage being able to train a lot more and develop. And I think it's also one reason why a lot of the uh, um, running performances are so wonderful right now, besides the fact we have dissemination of good information. I really believe that the reduction in the amount of competitions has contributed greatly to the depth of performances in America. Um, yeah, money has been the big factor, you know, in, in terms of why schools don't fund these extra competitions, but it really is an advantage. I know that was a so we should look story at, about that. No, no, that's all right. We should look at that as an opportunity and not a problem, right? I agree with you, Sam. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because, I mean, part of the, the evolution of this podcast and, and um, has been talking about people who work in coaching development and youth coaching and how do we change the philosophy and mindset around that. And um, most of us in that world tend to believe that we, as Americans, we tend to overcompete and we under practice, especially with young kids. And you get better through that practice part of it. And yes, you need games, you need competition. But um, when do you develop if you're constantly have if you got three track meets a week, when are you really developing? You know, it makes it much more complicated. Um, and I, I had no idea that you had that thought in your head. So I'm glad to Glad, always glad to hear that when it reaffirms something that you know you believe in, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So, how do you go about designing the training for your athletes then? Well, I have to know the historical background. That's absolutely the uh, most essential part. Um, and I always say your number of years as a runner is less important than the number of the years of being an athlete. Uh, it's a great example. You can take almost any kid that's played soccer for multiple years and put them into a running training program and advance their uh, training volume or what 
uh, types of workouts you prescribe very quickly and easily as if they had been training as a runner for multiple years when in fact they just started. Uh, so the difference between uh, a kid who's been sitting on the couch or playing computer games for the last few years and just starting cross country versus the kid who's been playing basketball or soccer um, or lacrosse is substantial. So you have to know the number of years the kid has been participating in uh, athletics, first of all. And then you have to know if, they're, uh, if they've had any deficiencies. Do they have a history of injuries and so on? Do they have any health issues that you need to know about? Anemia, respiratory infections, and so on. Um, there's a difference between genders. Girls mature a lot faster and earlier than boys. They can, they can, uh, they can absolutely handle more than what most Americans give them. Um, everybody's, oh, well, she's only 13. She can't handle more. She shouldn't get more than 20 miles a week. Um, I'm sorry, a 13-year-old girl is like a 15 or 16-year-old boy. Um, so don't, don't use that as a criteria. Year-round participation is a huge factor. Are they, are they training most of the year or are they seasonal? If they're, only, if they're not doing anything all summer and they show up for cross country, that's a lot different than a kid who ran eight or nine, ten weeks during the summer and has a smooth transition and build up to the cross country season. Do they run in the winter or do they sit around and gain weight and do nothing or, you know, lose a lot of muscle strength? Huge difference. The vast majority of the best best runners, in my view, are year-round athletes. They'll take a week or so off after each season, and they're back into smoothly building up. They have fewer injuries, fewer setbacks. They learn the mechanics of running. They learn the nuances of the lifestyle of being a runner. Um, they become self-aware as to what is just right and what's too much. The uh, self-awareness cannot be underestimated nor can the psychological component, which you learn to um, deal with fatigue or learn to uh, say, okay, that is not really pain, that's, that's fatigue and there's a difference. You learn those through participation, direct participation in the sport. I would suggest that's true in every sport. The football player who starts their first year won't have the same, same uh, response to work, uh, training, you know, on the second year, psychologically, the second year will say, oh, well, that's just part of the game. I should feel this tired. It's no big deal. Mm -hmm. In which case they move forward and, and don't get all bent out of shape about it. And they trust the process and their coaches and they say, okay, fatigue at this time of the season is okay because you have to kind of go through this in order to get to the other end. You go through that valley of fatigue, as my uh, good friend Charlie Mallory used to say. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> I like the valley of fatigue. I've heard I heard that somewhere uh, else, and I don't remember who I heard that one from. Um, you well, talked about being your round Villanova. Villanova. Okay, by maybe the way. so. Yeah, <laughs> could, could be. Yeah, I, I've heard that for a long time too, but never had an attribution for it. You know, never had uh, sure. something that I could say, "Oh, that's where it's from." So I, I'll try to add that to my. Uh, I'll give yeah. credit where credit is due. Um, you, you were talking about um, the kids who are year-round athletes. Um, I, one of my big pushes and one of my big things, and, and this is certainly at some point you specialize in a sport, 
but is having that ability to you know play other sports during the off season that potentially can help you you know with some of those deficiencies or help you with you know at least maintaining fitness um, and and taking a little bit of a break from the from you know the sport uh, you know cross country or track. Um, what are your thoughts on the kids playing other sports? Uh, see, there's one thing that, that's missing in this conversation. Integration integration, and multifaceted training year-round. So you can be a runner and do multi, multi-dimensional training, which simulates the experience of participating in a different sport where you use multilateral movement. So who okay. says it? You know, a runner can train year-round, but they can use a multitude of different types of conditioning that might simulate, uh, you know, side-to-side movements or working on the hips and core stability. That's what playing soccer or basketball or something else provides. You're going in different directions, and, and you're trying to strengthen, and you have to necessarily strengthen muscles in your core or muscles particularly in your hips. Well, who says a runner can't do that also? Right. My, my point is yeah, I, w- I would totally that having, agree with that, yeah. My, yeah, my point is you don't have to take up other sports just because you think you need to, uh, you know, strengthen your body in other ways. Well, you can do that all the time as a runner. And I mm-hmm. suggest that that's part of the complex type of training or integrated training approach that's necessary and one that I've adopted since uh, the late 80s. Let's, uh, let's have multidimensional training year-round for a runner. If that's the sport they want to participate in, why why force them to go into something else? Uh, yeah, I, I was not forcing them to go into something else. I just know that quite oh. a few kids do have interest in doing that. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, not suggesting you would. I'm just saying the general fo- mantra or philosophy or the question is why why we should limit them. Well, why should we not limit them to what they enjoy, provided we are smart enough to, as coaches to give them a complex training program that strengthens them in different ways while they're training for running. Yeah. Well, I think that multi, that, you know, runners, I mean, we are in the sagittal plane for the, all right, getting, getting the nerd on a little, a little bit here. You know, we sure. spend all of it pretty much in sagittal plane and, and we never do anything in the transverse plane. And then the first time the kid has to do that, maybe they have to jump out of the way of someone or avoid some obstacle that, you know, their risk of injury goes way up because they're just not used to moving in, you know, in the frontal or, or transverse planes. And sure. um, you, you ask somebody to do that. But I like the idea of integrating that into their training. And if they're not doing another sport, then making sure that as the smart coach, you are putting that in there so that they can, they can get that um, athletic development um, yeah. part of it. And also brings to the point of why it's important to train on grass if you had the luxury of having it year-round. Uh, I've always thought yeah. the advantage of living in Australia or New Zealand is they can run on grass year-round. Uh, absolutely essential because then it requires more balance. Therefore, yeah, absolutely. More, more stability, more strengthening of uh, you know hip muscles, for example. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, and luckily I live in Colorado Springs and we have, you know, wonderful trails and and some of them are, are technical trails and some of them are not very technical. And but you still end up with that uneven footing. But you're also not getting the pounding that, you know, kids ran on or, you know, kids who are in the more oh, urban yeah. areas 
may have very oh, yeah. low exposure to that. Yeah. yeah. I know you're, you're yeah. up in Boise. You guys have some off-road, you know, trail stuff too that that's uh, pretty nice. Yeah. yeah. I've been down in your neck of the woods. I used to live in Colorado. So I ran in the Garden of Gods and think it's an awesome place to train because you're changing directions. It's serpent, yeah, oh, serpentine yeah. paths, you know, moving left and right, up and down, and uh, absolutely great. Yeah, that up and down sometimes is not so good, though. Well, that was my first run when I moved to Colorado Spring. <laughs> yeah, that was not the wisest move I made moving from Atlanta, Georgia to here in my first run with the Garden of the Gods. Um, the, the <laughs> people are going, we, we don't know, what is this Garden of the Gods? And it, you, you never, there's not a, there's not more than about 10 meters anywhere on that run where you're flat. So uh, it's, you're either going up or going down on, um, on the runs on the trails that we do anyway so um <laughs> yep yeah. hey um kind of going off on the the training flossing stuff you are pretty well known i think at least on the message boards for your concept of critical velocity and applying it to training how about giving the folks your definition of critical velocity and how how you go about determining that and how you go about using it hopefully i understood because you broke up several times there. I think you asked me to define critical velocity and what it is, how it's used. Right. Yep. Your definition okay. of it, how do you determine it and how do you use it? Critical velocity as I define it is 90% of VO2 max, not the velocity because that's different. Easy way to do it is go to my website, click on the calculator and type in a 3K, 5K time and you'll see it right away. I also uh, uh, formally uh made an arrangement with final surge it's a uh, it's an online software program where athletes and coaches can input their workouts have it analyzed and so on i put a new calculator on there with uh or i allowed them to use my calculator so it's i use calculus to derive it if you ran a 5k in 16 minutes it regresses it back to seven minutes that's that's the, the uh, VO2 max velocity time that I use. And then I okay. use a formula to derive the energy, bioenergetic cost of running meters per second. And I, my formula integrates the, uh, the necessity to overcome air drag, and it's exponential. The vast mm -hmm. majority of formulas, in my view, are incorrect. They're great for tr treadmills, um, but you don't have to overcome air drag in treadmills. <clears throat> not outdoors you have to um, and then uh, basically think of it this way in practical terms critical velocity is uh, something a pace that you can hold for roughly 30 to 35 minutes um, that's if you got a fairly well uh, fairly well balanced physiology between your endurance and your speed um, mm -hmm. somebody who's an 800 meter runner might not be able to hold it that long maybe they might be able to hold it 20 to 25 minutes uh but in a matter of just uh six to eight weeks with critical velocity training as a regular component of their training they'll be able to hold it for half an hour okay. but it doesn't re doesn't really matter because it, it turns out that when uh, you're thrown on the um on the uh, treadmill in a, in a human performance lab and you are measured for your uh, components of physiology you'll find that the, that it's the speed associated or velocity associated with critical velocity um, has the same amount of perceived fatigue 
regardless if you can hold it only 25 or 35 minutes. It's just that the fatigue, uh, how, how long you can hold that fatigue increases as you train properly. Basically, you're by using critical velocity, you're creating capacity to hold a steady uh, race pace fat for a longer period of time. And it's even true for 800 and 1600 meter runners, not just for distance runners. I've had mm -hmm. over the years a numerous coaches say, I can't believe that my kids are setting PRs in 800 or 1600, and they've only been doing striders and critical velocity and easy distance work. I can't believe it. I trained him with 10 times 400 last year, and the kid ran 448. <laughs> and this year, they've only been doing repeat 1Ks at CV pace, which is about their half-hour rate pace, and a few striders, and the kid just ran 430. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me because they're not doing goal-paced training. I said because goal-paced training is a, is a cognitive concept, not a physiology concept. That is, we're making this up as if it's true in our, what's true in our mind is true in our body, but it's not. I give this a great example. How many times in the past have we, have we observed for ourselves or others, people, runners, coming off of a so-called base in the summer or even a base in the winter of doing miles after miles after miles of no fast running and they set a PR or very close to a PR right at the beginning of the cross country, right at the beginning of the track season. And within two or three weeks of doing some sort of race pace type work or training, they sit there at their lifetime best. They've done very little goal pace training. This goal pace stuff is a, is a cognitive concept. When you're fitter, you're fitter. It doesn't take much for your nervous system to become more coordinated and, and the capacity to generate smooth force, you know, uh, follows just a handful of workouts. So in about five to seven workouts, you're pretty much getting close to the maximum you're gonna get. The re return on investment after that is extremely small. You might as well continue to improve your overall physiology. This would go back, I think if Arthur Liddy were alive, he'd say, yeah, I told you guys this. <laughs> you know, get fitter, get fitter. Yeah. And that's what critical velocity does. Critical velocity, in my view, is is the hub. It's it's you know it's the fulcrum. It's it's the balance. I look at it this way: the vast majority of beneficial training lies between 60% of the O2 max and 120% of the O2 max. In other words, a very easy distance pace and slightly faster than 800 meter race pace. That's the range. The exact. Dead center of that is 90% of EO2 max, which is what critical velocity is. Essentially, you can do critical velocity as a, as a fantastic conditioner of muscle fibers, in particular, faster intermediate fibers, which are, are the ones that still have some explosive capacity, but they're highly malleable. This is my argument since 1989. If you look at research by Gallant back in 1974, he... He postulates, and Gallick, Phil Gallick was a great researcher in physiology exercise, and he postulates back in 74 that the fast fiber has the capacity to become highly oxidative. Actually, he postulates it has the capacity to become even more oxidative than your slow-twitch muscle fibers. When you combine the concept of the fast, faster fiber has the capacity to generate force in about half the time of a slow-twitch fiber, 
-hmm. And it has the genetic malleability to become highly oxidative with the right type of training. You realize that this is gold. This is your golden, this is your golden opportunity if you train at it optimally. And that's what critical velocity is, in my view. That's why I said it there. It's above the so-called threshold. It's below the so-called yeah. VO2 max. It's highly sustainable. You can repeat it. You can do it week after week after week. And what happens over time, in my view, is the faster intermediate fibers become extremely capable of processing available oxygen. The mitochondria uh, volume increases, the enzymatic capacity increases, perhaps the uh, angiogenesis is, is, is going up, in other words, the capitalization, uh, and so on. All I can tell you is this, if you knew nothing about physiology other than using how to, how to use a lactate meter, and you went out there and you tested somebody before for applying critical velocity training, and even four to six weeks later, you'll see that they're producing less lactate at a faster aerobic pace. Very good. Very good. It's, uh, so uh, let me wrap my head around this and, and come at it from an angle. This, this sounds a little bit like Steven Seiler's idea of polarized training. Am I off on that? or And, and are you familiar with Seiler's work? I should probably oh, yeah. say first. Yeah, I know Seiler. I know Seiler, but it, it doesn't it doesn't uh, agree okay. with Seiler. Seiler basically okay. says run at VO two max or run slow. That's right. essentially what right. it comes down to. But yeah, and but you're a little bit below should, that. In that range. I'm saying below that, not yeah. a lot below okay. that. What he also said with the polarized trade, and realize he's he's summarizing uh, uh, groups of research data out there, so he's not necessarily coming up with the concept. What he's doing is he's He's extracting information from available research. But I will suggest if you look at Seiler's, one of his principles or points, uh, key points is that the intermediate zone of this tempo and threshold is, is not that effective in terms of return on invested time. So he's saying, in other words, running 75, 80, 85% of VO2 max, that intermediate zone is probably not optimal if you want to get fairly rapid results and that sort of thing. And I suggest mm -hmm. another key point of Seiler is that fatigue is, and maybe he doesn't say it directly, but I infer it, is that fatigue is generated quite a lot when you're doing a higher volume of that intermediate type of training and not realizing it's actually that stressful. That last point is probably mine more than any, is that that you do develop a lot of fatigue and therefore when you when you try to do something like vo2 max you can't generate enough power and you can't push yourself hard enough to really benefit from it if your legs are weary because you've glycogen depleted them by doing a lot of tempo and threshold running or if you're doing a so-called you know uh progression runs where people are doing this like every day and they're glycogen yeah. depleted and they're, and they're faster than immediate fibers. So that when they step on the track or step on the cross-country course to do some VO2 max type work, they can't generate any force. They're depleted. Now, if they backed off for two or three days, just jogged around and ate a bunch of carbohydrates, I suggest that right away they could be able to do that VO2 max just fine. So that would have been my yeah. solution. Rather than ciders, it has to be you know, 100% or 60 or 65% of VO2 max is be conscious of your carbohydrate requirements, number one, because vast majority of runners don't eat enough carbohydrates. 
particularly prior to key workouts where they have to run faster. Mm-hmm. Number two, understand that anytime you're running in that intermediate area, say 75, 80, 85% of VO2 max, from a slow tempo to a tempo to a threshold, you are depleting your glycogen stores in your muscle uh, very rapidly. And consequently, um, the fatigue is going to be there when you try to do racing, when you try to do high quality workouts. So you have to account for that. And more importantly, probably, or just as importantly, you have to slow way down on your easy days. And that's one of the huge parts of my training philosophy, and it's been for years. Slow way down. This does does match Seiler's uh, low end of his recommendation, which go slow or go fast. Completely matches, and the reason is because you're not burning up a bunch of glycogen from your fast fibers when you're running slow. Um, back, back to your fatigue thing here. I'm, I'm fascinated with fatigue and the causes of it. Um, it. It almost sounds like so. How I'm interpreting that is that I'm going out and doing these intermediate runs, and while I'm not, I don't feel tired. I mean, it's not like one of those things like, man, that workout really worked me, or feeling it. It's more that in, in your muscles are fatigued, so they're not going to respond. But you're not, you're not overwhelmingly fatigued. You're not wiped out by it, but. You've got enough fatigue in there. You can't really hit that high intensity that you're trying to hit on the days when you need to go hard. Well, this is true. And, then, and again, the reason is because the glycogen, which is a stored form of carbohydrate in your muscle fibers, also in your liver, but particularly in your muscle fibers, is being gradually and systematically depleted by running mm-hmm. too fast on your easy runs. Yes. So basically, just remember this. It, around, it depends upon how fit you are, but... Your typical, say, 17 or 18-minute boy or 19 or 20-minute girl 5K runner um, starts using their fast intermediate fibers in, you know, in around 60, 65% of VO2 mass, which is a very easy pace, about two and a half minutes a mile slower than their 5K pace. So they're already starting to activate their fast intermediate fibers at that two and a half minutes per mile slower than 5K pace. So if they're out there running, say, one and a, one to one and a half minutes slower than their 5K pace, they're actually using their fast intermediate fibers on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Now, right. that's fine Fine if your goal is to target those fibers and condition them, because you are. But if your goal is also to come back and, and do a high-quality interval workout the following day, and you've worked those fast intermediate fibers by running seven or eight miles at – one minute, 15 seconds per mile slower than your 5K pace, you're not going to have much stored carbohydrate, glycogen, in those fast fibers on the day when you try to do your high-quality interval workout or a race. Therefore, no power is po- is, is possible. That's why your legs feel dead, why you can't run fast. Yeah. Well, it's not that they're out of shape. It's just they don't have much glycogen in them. So you have to make a choice, which goes back to Siler. You have to make a choice. What is most important to you? Or are you able to really account for all this intermediate training? Because it really does make your legs low on glycogen. Therefore, you can't train at a high quality level. You know, I talked to a lot of endurance coaches both over the last, you know, almost 20 years now. And I've talked to a lot of coaches youth coaches as well on that line and something you said earlier is something i hear consistently and it's sort of starting to drive me nuts because i'm hearing this consistently enough from people is the athletes go they don't they don't go easy enough on their easy days Mm -hmm. 
and to some extent don't go hard enough on the hard days although i think most coaches probably think yeah that may be less so but the biggest complaint i hear is that you put an easy run out there for somebody or an easy bike ride and especially if they get with a group of people it's just it just starts slowly picking up you know well, you start out in a nice little we're chit-chatting pace and then before you know it you know you're somebody is you know either feeling good or just feels like they got to show off that day and everybody else has to keep up with them and what was supposed to be a nice easy leisurely run ends up being a time trial kind of thing agree agree and this is why the coach has a responsibility to educate and hold hold athletes accountable the vast majority coaches don't the vast majority coaches just say go run eight miles and And next thing you know, those kids are went from 8.30 a mile to 6.25 a mile, and they're depleting their bodies, and they can't come back and perform well yep. in their key interval workout. It's the coach's fault in the vast majority of cases. It's not usually the lack of general knowledge of the coach. It's, your, it's the fact that they don't hold their kids accountable. It may be that, that the, the culture of running is such that we like the freedom of movement, the freedom of doing what feels right, freedom, as opposed to being a swim uh, a swimmer where you're you're regimented but i yes. suggest that if you want your teams to be successful it's absolutely necessary to first identify what your athletes need each and every athlete needs to to, to do for their training pace what what pace is optimal on a small range and hold them accountable if that means you have a run one mile loops around a park and you lock them into that pace and if they come by like bill Baum used to do and if they run too fast just make them wait for 30 seconds do it. Yeah. It will only take two maximum of three weeks as a coach to be able to get your kids to run the correct pace. Half the time they, they're just un, unaware. They're self-aware because they haven't been held to that standard before. It's no different than as a teacher holding their, their uh, students accountable to a certain standard. Students become aware of what the standard is first and become uh, – they buy in – within two or three weeks if, if they're being held accountable to that standard, just like a worker at a job site. Yeah. I, I, I was glad you mentioned the swimming one because I always – I find the swimming one to be – you know, that's that's such an easy thing because the coach is never more than maybe 50 meters at a 50-meter pool away from an athlete. You can easily monitor you're going too fast, you're going too slow. But a lot that's of times right. here or in other places, it's, yeah, let's go, go do the five-mile run, you know, go down to the water fountain in the park, you know, that's two and a half miles away and come back and do that. And, you know, and if you're a coach who's older and can't run with your athletes, then, you know, that could be an issue that, you know, in doing that, but then get on the bike. I, you know, I I love, I love the movie, um, McFarland, you know, which, and and I love the fact that when, when Costner figures out, Hey, wait a minute, you know, at least in the movie, I don't know if this really happened in real life or not, but in the movie, he grabs a bike and starts riding along with the kids and sure. um, and doing that. Like, yeah, why don't you get a mountain bike and just ride along? You can, you can on those easy days, you can ride along with your kids. I did this with an adult athlete group that I coached one time. We had about 100 athletes um, who were trained for various marathons in one large group. And um, I would run with them sometimes, but then I would get my mountain bike out and ride up and down the group on long runs 
because I wasn't trained mm-hmm. for a marathon. I wasn't going to do a 20 miler. And you know, my job was to coach, not to run. And so I would, you know, start at the back of the pack, talk to those folks, speed up a little bit, talk to the next group, next group, next group. Um, you know, I could end up, I could end up running or riding about 35 miles over the course of that day while they were, while they ran 20, but it gave me a chance to talk with them and also to make sure if they couldn't carry on a conversation with me, back off, you're going too fast for, you know, we're trying to run 15 miles, not trying to race 15 miles here. And, um, and I, I don't know how many coaches actually either, like you say, have the mile loop or, or some way getting there so that they teach those athletes that accountability and responsibility. Yeah. Um, and that actually segues into the, and I'm on, this will be kind of the last, um, I actually had two questions for you left before I do some closing little fun questions. How do you go about monitoring the training with the athletes that you coach? I'm sorry, you broke up. Can you repeat that? Sure. How do you go about monitoring the training of your athletes? Well, there are multiple mechanisms. One certainly is the regular feedback. In my case, I, I do everything um, through Final Surge. Uh, it's an on, online software program that I really love. It's a calendar form, and uh, the athletes see the workouts that I input, and they provide comments, and I get an immediate notification from that as soon as they post their uh, comments, so I know what's going on. Um, some of my athletes uh, text me um, or email and I get regular feedback on that. And then some of them I have conversations with on the phone. Okay. That's, that's just a general communication tool. And then uh, I also have some analytics that I created uh, using calculus that uh, where I can analyze the, the total impact of training. We're going to have that on uh, Final Surge. I'm, I'm working with them to put that on. Um, basically, I think it's far better than anything that's out there. Basically, I know, for example, what is the total stress impact of a 10-mile run at 6-minute pace versus 10 times 400 at 70-second pace for an athlete who is, uh, you know, a 1635K runner. Um, recoveries are included. The, the uh, impact of the recoveries uh, are accounted for, and I've used multiple means of analyzing the uh, the impact of the recovery duration and quality. Uh, so I know exactly how hard workouts are, and that gives me a big time advantage as a coach. Most coaches have no clue, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I don't know how, I know that eight times 400 is a hard workout at mile pace with a minute jog. And they gave them a two-mile warm-up and cool-down. Well, they don't realize that was equivalent to, you know, six times a mile at at uh, their 8K pace, for example, with a two-minute jog recovery. Um, and all of it is adjusted according to the equivalent or composite uh, functional fitness, which integrates their VO2 max economy and their threshold. Okay. All right. Um do you use uh do you have athletes and are you getting data from you know gps devices heart rate monitors i am and then through final surge the the, we're getting more and more uh, advanced in how we can download and analyze the data using my formulas and stuff and uh, uh we'll probably create some sort of uh commercially available service so that if coaches really want to know how hard they're athletes are training or how hard the workouts are they can uh, 
purchase purchase for a modest fee the program. Um, but at present, I'm I'm the only one that really knows what all that means. I am trying to educate people. When I go to clinics, uh, I just was at Iowa State um, for championship video productions. I was at the running summit this summer. I went to Virginia Tech for the big running camp. Oh, yeah. I'm going out to Wisconsin in February for their state association track field. I'm going to Villanova in, in, uh, in March. Uh, Marcus O'Sullivan invited me out, and I got some more in the summer. I try to share some of these insights and it's easy to do in person. Um, right. You have examples with my computers. I, I created it in Excel, so nobody has it at this point, but they will in the future if they want to purchase it. But in person, I can punch in the workouts that these coaches are prescribing and show them, oh, okay, well, this is worth 112 stress, stress quality points. And that uh, eight mile run is, is worth, uh, you know, 50 quality points. Um, so you can have an idea how much one one workout will affect another, and you have how much an idea of how much uh, impact or stress has been applied during a given week or two weeks period of time. Yeah, this is very similar to in the cycling world. Andy Coggin developed some very similar metrics using power meters and on on yeah. cyclists. Right. Yep. So yeah. similar concept. They're trying to figure out the equivalencies between that and basing his stuff off of uh, off of uh, Bannister, not Roger, the Canadian Bannister, right. work with Trump using heart rate, kind of Yeah, that Trump, that. Stuff is, Trump stuff is pretty bogus in my view. Um, the power meter stuff that he uses is reasonably good. He uses a exponent of four, and that's really good, except it doesn't account for um, it doesn't account for recoveries very well, so in some cases, if it's a steady, continuous applied pressure, Andy Coggins um, uh, quantitative analysis is spot on in my view, but it's not very good when you have uh, stochastic variations, um, <laughs> up and down re re recoveries. It doesn't. It's not the same. It's not accurate uh, to the same degree as a continuous application. And certainly, the running is way off. The the trimp stuff. Bannister's trimp is way off. Not even close. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know Andy Coggin really well. Um, we we go like back a long way from my days. He's, he's a brilliant cycling. guy. Absolutely he is. brilliant. He is I, a, I, read his, I read his posts. I, I love reading his research. The guy's got it. I'm not I'm not yeah. putting him down one bit because I think he's no, absolutely a forerunner. Uh, he's a he's an inventor. He's a brilliant researcher. I would go mm -hmm. to his lectures anytime and, and learn from him. I'm just suggesting yeah. that what I'm offering is is even better. Well, and also specific to running. I mean, he, he's the first to, to go with the fact that this is a this is cycling specific. And right. um, I know the triathlon world, you know, has tried to adopt some of that because trying to figure out what's the quantitative training load for a triathlete, mm -hmm. you know, doing three different activities, you know, becomes infinitely more complex. Um, yeah. So the, the bike racing is pretty simple, straightforward. And the nice thing on there is you can actually measure the actual power output, which may be yeah. coming along and running. We'll see how these devices uh, pan out. Not he's involved with uh, one of those companies as well um, in doing yeah. that. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, we're getting close to the time here, and I appreciate your time on this. So I want to kind of wrap up with some of the questions I uh, typically ask my guests. Um, one of the things is, what's the best coaching advice you ever received? 
Um, Mr. Don McMorris, my very first coach back in the late 70s, said, uh, make sure you include everything. <laughs> do, do the long runs, do the long intervals, do the short intervals, do the hills, do the sprints. Make sure you include it all. Very good. I like that. If you had a magic wand and could do away with one, I don't know, coaching philosophy or coaching practice, what would it be? Well, I think I would support Lydiard in this, the abuse of high-intensity intervals, particularly the high-frequency, and the uh, the concept of more is better, more intervals, more intensity, more racing. I would get rid of all that. Uh, as we start out this conversation, there is a huge opportunity to develop athletes if you only have to have them race once a week. A lot of training mm-hmm. can take, take place. It prevents them from being a unbalanced and i think that goes back to a lydiard principle you know he constantly talked about being balanced and and uh you can't get in your long runs and your tempos and your thresholds and your cvs and all this if you're constantly racing but you can if you're intricately racing Mm -hmm. yep um who do you follow you know uh, you know on you know twitter blogs whatever who are some of the folks that you uh, make sure that you keep up with what they're writing or, or producing. Oh, well, I got to tell you, I don't. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I simply don't have time. I'm a full-time teacher. I have a coaching business. I'm working on a PhD and I have a family. So at this point, uh, I don't get on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that hardly ever. Um, okay. My, 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 uh, the people I'm learning from are the specialists in physiology because I'm, reading research constantly so they aren't really focused on developing runners or right. or athletes in particular but they're doing research on an interest of theirs such as angiogenesis or mito, mm-hmm. mitochondrial biogenesis but um that's those are the people i've always looked to for info i would suggest this to anybody who wants to improve is go to a different sport and and investigate what they do there that was one of the smartest things I ever did in the 80s. I looked at swimming and cross-country skiing and cycling for information, uh-huh. not running. That's where I got more insight than anywhere because they were doing something differently in a different context, but principally the same. And uh, swimming in particular had a uh, basically experimental type of design situation. You have a constant environment the temperature of the water is reasonably similar. You don't deal with wind factors. Yeah. It's very measured. They were doing lactate testing. Um, yep. Lots of insight came from it. All you have to do is be able to extract the key principles I, uh, from those sports and, and somehow apply them to running. Yeah. I, I find that funny because my old boss at USA Cycling is a guy named Pat McDonough who was a silver medalist in the pursuit on the – track in the 1984 oh. olympics and team pursuit sure. and sure. uh and when i would talk with pat about this because i was the coaching education director for usa cycling and you know he would he would sometimes come by and just you know we talking about training and whatnot and he goes he goes you know the funny part about this is he used to get all his training from like runner's world and the runner magazine <laughs> that was the press or that because they said that was the only stuff that was published out there nobody was publishing stuff on how to you know train a cyclist so he would look at that and go okay 
I if I do this, that's the equivalent to doing that, you know, yep. on the bike. And so I, I find that to be humorous that it's, it's sort of the full circle has come on that one. So um, so I like that yeah. idea big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I, I got one more question after this one is how can people find you website, um, email, Twitter, whatever it may be that people can locate more information about 10 man. My uh, website is runningprs.com. In other words, running personal records, runningprs.com. And uh, my email is runfastcoach at gmail.com. Awesome. Great. And then here's my probably question. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say more and more of my – my work will be on finalsurge.com. Okay. Um, my calculator is already on there, um, articles, blogs, and stuff like that. Uh, Tim and Brian and Bob are trying to get me to do more blogs. Right now I just started writing some info about uh, about the different types of training, paces, intensities, what they mean. For example, what does critical velocity mean? What does aerobic power mean? What is what does threshold mean? What does tempo mean? And uh-huh. so on. So I'm gradually working on that. I have about another week of vacation from school where I don't have my <laughs> doctoral studies. And I'm, I keep thinking I'll be able to finish it. And I'm trying. <laughs> but I got so many pans in the fire. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. And, and, and you got podcasters like me calling you up, taking your time, too. I, I will give a shout out to the Final Search podcast. They do some really good interviews on there. And um, so I, I listen to them. Pre- I, at least I check and see who they're talking to each week. And sometimes I'll listen to it and sometimes I, want, I won't as well. All right. My last question before I let you go here is um, if you had some folks that you could, and these could be living or dead, um, Folks that you could sit down, have dinner, and a conversation over a beverage of your choice. Who would be some of those people you'd want at that table? Well, Arthur Lydiard, for sure. Um, <laughs> yes. Still living a uh, Arch Jelly from New Zealand. Um, ah, okay. I would like to meet Pat Pat Cloacy, Franz Stomfall, Mahali Igloy, oh, yeah. Harry Wilson, Ron Holman. Um, Jack um, Piranha, who is the real mastermind behind the Villanova University distance running success, not Jumbo Jim Elliott, who was the head coach. Uh, right. Or Jack. Uh, Jack was the um, guy who was recruited from a local Catholic high school in the Pennsylvania area and became the brilliant mind behind all the uh, success of people like Marty LaCorey and so on and uh, Mark Belger and all those guys. Fantastic. Um, probably Harry Groves from Pennsylvania, Bill Bowerman. Um, Bill Dellinger is still alive. I had the privilege of meeting him. I'd, um, he has trouble getting around uh, because of a stroke he had a few years ago, but yep. I'd like to spend some time with him and greatly admire him. Um, probably Alan Story from Great Britain. I, uh, I'm a big believer that he's a brilliant mind over there. And probably Gosta Holmer from Sweden. Uh, probably a few others I can think of off the, once uh, our podcast is completed. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be a big dinner. I, yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to pick up the bill for that one, um, for sure. 
Well, Tom, I appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge with it. And I, I really appreciate the fact you're so willing to share your knowledge about training and uh, giving coaches more information and, and putting it out there for them to decide to whether to use it or not. That's the only way you can really effectively grow coaching and make better athletes is if coaching coaches like yourself are willing to share. And, um, and so I do appreciate that. And um, I will let you go with that and get back to your vacation and um, try to get a few of those things that you have on your checklist done. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you including me in the conversation with helping uh, distance running thrive and um, certainly all that you do to help the sport grow. Um, really appreciate that, Sam. Thanks, Tom. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks everyone for joining me for this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, Again, reach out to me with feedback, either through Twitter, Smarter Coaching, my email address, smartercoachingllc at gmail.com, or via the website, smartercoachingllc.com. Also, if you've not done so, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, leave some comments there, but uh, give me some feedback on how I'm doing. I'm really interested and looking to improve the podcast. Hope you have a great week and hope to catch you back here on the Smarter Coaching Podcast on our next episode.